Today's passage is 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. Respect. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. All right, what's going on? How are we feeling? Are we all right? All right, good. Hey, everybody was on time today. What happened? No idea. So glad. So glad everyone's here. And uh, uh, we have a nice short passage today. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray. I'm going to give it some context. We're going to talk about belonging. We're going to talk about um, community and how community is bound together. Last week we talked about why community is important. Um, we, we, we pretty much all agreed that it's very difficult to know ourselves and other people apart from community. Um, at least I, I hope you agreed. Um, and today, so we're going to talk about how a community is bound together, the, uh, the part that the Holy Spirit plays in all of this, and I think it will be great. Okay, so let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for gathering us here, your people, your body. Um, I ask that you would... Um, Mold us, make us in your image, uh, fasten us together in, in unity, um, help us to learn to gather uh, encouragement and strength and love uh, from these times that we are together. Um, I, I lift up those right now who are here, but who mentally are somewhere else, who have just so many things weighing down on them. I ask that right now you would still their souls, quiet their hearts, allow them to be here. Um, allow them to be here in your presence, knowing that you are gathered in our midst and you love them and you want them to be at peace, not anxious, and that you want to speak to them. And so I ask right now that you would do that for them. And so, Lord, uh, as, we, as we talk about your spirit, your church, the body of Christ, uh, the ancient Christians, uh, the temple, as we talk about all of these things, I ask that you would give us knowledge, give us wisdom to apply that knowledge, um, and give us perspective on exactly who we are. Thank you. In your name, amen. Okay, we're going to start here um, because if you've been with us since the beginning of this, this uh, study of this book, then you know that, that Peter is writing to a, um, a group of people, the ancient first century Christians, who were on the run for their lives, men, women, and children, all terrified, uh, packing up their families and running as Nero sends out his troops um, to round the Christians up and arrest them, to feed them to lions, to roll them in pitch and light them on fire, to illuminate his gardens, um, to absolutely torture and, and, and mangle them. A very terrifying time in Christian history. Um, and people in this time, in, in situations like this, have a really hard time making sense of anything. And so Peter writes them a letter and there's a lot of things he wants them to know. First off, he wants them to know that, that most people on this earth are living by the flesh. They're doing exactly what their flesh wants them to do. He also wants them to know that Christians have the ability to live by the Spirit, something different, something he calls holy. Uh, we connect it to the Spirit of God, and it gives us guidance, and it gives us strength and joy in times of great fleshly trial. Their spirit is stronger. And so he wants to give them some names as well. He gives them four names this morning. He calls them a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his own possession. And so 
We're going to take a few minutes and, and walk through a few of these here. Uh, chosen race. Choice is a very important thing, especially in our lives. We're, we're Americans. We're free. We make a lot of decisions. Um, there's 50 different kinds of peanut butter that we get to choose from. And we, we have choices like no generation has ever had. Um, we have so many choices, and we, and we exercise our, our spirit of choice so often that, that we don't even, that we completely take it for granted now, the ability to choose. Um, but what we, what we do know is that when we choose something, we are choosing it freely, and we're choosing it with a purpose. We're choosing something because it is the best possible choice we can make. None of us like to be known for making bad choices, although we all know people who make bad choices. We just don't tell them. Um, but all of us want to be people who choose the right thing, um, who, who make a choice about whatever it is that you're choosing based on this will meet my needs and the needs of those around me. This is the best possible choice I can make. I will choose this. And so Peter looks at them and, he's, and he looks at a people who are running for their lives and terrified and cannot stand up to the Roman Empire. And he says, you are chosen. You were chosen. You are the best possible choice that God could have made. You were chosen for many reasons. Uh, we know now that had this not happened, we probably wouldn't be here today. Had the Christians not been persecuted, had they not had to run for their lives, Christianity would not have spread throughout the world. The choice that God made was not wrong. It was right. It was very difficult to make, I imagine, but it was the right thing to do. And he wanted them to know that they were chosen by God. The second thing he says is, you are a royal priesthood. Last week we talked about the idea of a priest. Uh, we get our word priest from the Latin word pontifex, which means bridge builder. We talked about how a lone brick in a field is nothing but a stumbling block, but we are to be together to build bridges and roads from God to other people. So what he's telling them is, in the world, in a massive group of people who do not know God, you are there and you know God, you are their priest. You know about uh, when, when you were growing up going to the ancient Jewish temple in the first century and the priest was there and the priest cared so deeply about connecting the people that were around the temple with God. And he was in charge of taking care of their sins and he was in charge of making sure that, that their stuff was taken care of. And he says, that is one of your jobs. Each conversation is important. Each interaction is important. So he's giving them incredible purpose. And then he says... Uh, you are a holy nation. There's few things that are more comforting and encouraging than, be able, than being able to say, I have a people. We would all like to say, my people are from here. We are like this. My people don't do that. My people are different. My people. And so what he's saying is you are a different people, a holy nation. We react different than the rest of the world. We are, Peter says, born again. In other words, living from the spirit. We choose things based upon whether or not they are part of the kingdom of God, and they represent the gospel of Christ that is taught. So, um, a holy nation. Then he says, a people for his own possession. Now, possession is an important thing, just as important as choice, because possession oftentimes can take a very normal object and give it a lot of worth and a lot of value. The maker of this hat made lots of hats. Some of them are still around today. Uh, they're worth, uh, some of them, a little under 200 bucks. You could probably get them on eBay. But this hat belonged to Abraham Lincoln. It is worth more. Why? Because it's made better? No. Because it does anything special? Absolutely not. It does nothing. It never has done anything different than any other hat, but it sat on the head of the great Abraham Lincoln. And so now it is worth so much more. Um, these bifocals um, look silly and hipstery, and they, they have no other purpose than to be bifocals, but they were Benjamin Franklin's bifocals. That was Benjamin Franklin's book. 
And now it sits in a museum somewhere for people to look at and say, well, this was in the presence of Benjamin Franklin. Wow. And somehow that gives something incredible worth, but it does. Um, He says, you are a possession, a holy possession of God. God. You are God's possession. In other words, you have infinite worth. Uh, something that is owned by someone of great power, great influence, great wealth, it is worth more. Sometimes all something has to do is pass through the presence of somebody who is great. Um, For instance, here's a shot of J.K. Rowling making this kid's book worth four times what it was worth a second ago. Looking at him saying, do you have any idea what this book is going to be worth in just a second? Right now, it's worth nothing. The pen is about to touch the paper, and you can see the look on her face. Money bags coming at you, okay? Um, all of that, autographs are a really interesting thing. They, they really are. You have something that is autographed, and you say, look at this. It's autographed by Mickey Mantle. All that means is, literally, it passed through for a split second. It passed through the presence of Mickey Mantle. That's it. And it's suddenly worth so much money. Possession even if just for a second, is an important thing. And he's giving them incredible worth. The things that he is telling them they needed to hear, they were like so downtrodden. They were so beat down. They were terrified. And he writes them this letter and says incredible things to them. Imagine if this is how we talk to each other. How many people do you know that need to hear things like this? You are the possession of God. How could you ever talk about yourself as being worthless? How could you ever think that you are that? And so there's four different things that basically he is addressing here, various parts of their life. First off, he's addressing their identity. He's saying you're a chosen race. As followers of Christ, you are not a tag-along. You you're not just there by mistake. You were chosen and put there. You were, you were chosen, handpicked by, God, by a God who says, this is exactly what I was looking for. So it's their, their identity, their activities. You are a part of the royal priesthood. This is not about work. It's about the part that you play in this world. You take what the priests did there in the temple, and you do that here now in this world. Um, also, your belonging. You are a holy nation. You have a people. You are not alone, and you should not pretend that you are alone. Too many of us are pretending that we are alone, and our personal faith matters above everyone else's, and, and we neglect our communal faith. Um, and the last thing he says, he talks a bit about how they are his possession. Uh, it speaks about your worth. You are not disposable. To God, um, every Wednesday morning I, I gather with a, a little group of guys for coffee, and it's dangerous being my friend because I can use you as an illustration at any time I want. Um, but we're packing up to leave, packing up all our fine coffee things, and a tumbler falls off the dock into the water, and we're just looking at it. And it's there, and it's cold, and we're not going in the water. And a decision was made. It's useless. It's meaningless. We're going to walk away. Left the tumbler sinking to the bottom. Um, did we litter? I think we did. Um, well, we'll bring in that next time. Another, but but I, I say all that to say this. When I, when, I, when I think about this, that's the kind of thing that I think of. There are so many things in our life that we just don't care about if they are lost. I promise you, you are not the tumbler that God doesn't care about. All right? Um, it, there are people in this world that, that don't care about you and I, that if we were to die, they wouldn't even bat an eye. Their, their lives would just move on as if we were never here. That is not God. You were chosen. You have a reason. You have a purpose for being here. Chosen by God for a specific purpose, a specific thing. You don't know what it is. They didn't know what it was, but God does. Um, 
And so with that, we move on to verse 10. We're going to do the first half of verse 10 first. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you were not, you didn't have a, peop- a, a, a nation, a people. Uh, you were alone. Um, things were, were less significant. A lot of the things that he has said um, that Peter's been writing about um, are about those who, who live by the flesh versus those who live by the spirit. And the people who live by the flesh tend to chase after insignificance a lot. Tend to chase after a lot of things that just simply don't matter. God is in the business of taking things that are insignificant and making them significant. He is in the business of taking things that the fleshly world looks at as like super important and just pushing them down and replacing them with something that really actually matters. God is in the business of taking people who we see as insignificant and making them significant, utterly significant. Uh, A few weeks back, we talked about chapter 1, verse 24, all flesh is like grass. Um, This was a a meme of its day. It was, uh, all flesh is just like grass. It's born, it withers, it fades, it exists to feed the goats and the sheep. Um, Nothing matters, life doesn't matter. But Peter, quoting Isaiah, says, yes, but God even makes the flesh the grass of the field. He even makes the grass of the field to have blooms and blessings and incredible moments. If the grass is just here for a second, sometimes a day, and it has a bloom on it, that Solomon said, uh, are dressed better than any woman in her wedding dress, then God cares. If God cares about the smallest things, then he absolutely cares about us. God is in the business of taking things that are insignificant, giving them, infusing them with meaning and purpose and beauty. This is what he does. Um, if you talk to a lot of atheists about why they don't believe in God, why they, they don't think that um, there could be a God, why they reject ideas of there being someone greater and a higher power, um, a lot of the reasons that they do um, center around the idea of suffering. Well, if there really is a God who loves us and cares about us and wants everything that is best for us, why would he allow us to have suffering? Suffering is meaningless. It's terrible. It's awful. It's painful. And suffering becomes, from afar, when we look at it, a reason to reject God. However, I have known far too many people that have lived through terrible times, incredibly difficult things. And you know what they say? You ask them, what was the thing in your life that solidified your faith in God when God was most real, when God was there and helped you grow and look at life in in, in a way, in a more godly and holy way than you ever had before? You know what they say? Suffering. I was in suffering, and it changed my life. It opened up my eyes to relationships and a family, and it closed my eyes to insignificant things that I used to worship, like careers and money and status All of these things that used to matter so much are now insignificant. And the things that were insignificant now mean so much more. Every bite is tastier. Every sip of water is more refreshing. Every morning is brighter and more beautiful. Um, I have had people tell me the greatest gift I ever received was cancer because of what it did to my family. It brought us so close. And, and, and we have never loved each other like we did then. God is capable of taking insignificant things, things that seem to have no sense or meaning or purpose, and giving them great meaning and great purpose. This is the kind of stuff that our God does. Yeah? 
to what he does. Um, we also talked about uh, daily life. We talked about how, um, you know, there's two people can have the exact same job. Uh, one man can, can, can have this job that he just absolutely hates. It just, it's drudgery. Every single day is the same, and he hates it, and the pay is bad and everything. And then the man working next to him absolutely loves his job, absolutely loves it. He loves the people he's working with. He's, he, he doesn't really care about the pay because the pay for him is not monetary. The pay for him is that he gets to help people and do something that is meaningful. And, and do you know what separates these two people? It's pride. Pride has the ability to suck the joy out of life. When you look at things as, I don't deserve this, I deserve more, then it takes what you have and sucks the joy and the meaning out of it. Um, Let's throw up the next verse here. The second half of verse 10. I did it. There we go. Oh, okay. We're going to let it roll. Uh, the second half of verse 10 uh, says this. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Um, and so a lot of times we confuse the definitions of mercy and grace. A lot of times we think they're one thing, but they're actually something totally different. Gr- grace is receiving what you do not deserve. This is grace. It is the gift. I don't deserve this, and I have it, and it makes you happy and, and makes you humble. It is a wonderful thing. That's what we receive from God. But we also receive mercy from God. Mercy preempts grace. Mercy comes before grace. Mercy is not receiving what you do deserve. People rarely talk about what they do deserve. If we were being honest with ourselves, we would say most of the things that we have, we don't deserve them we kind of cheated a bit. We kind of weren't honest. Oh, by the way, we have a soul that is just depraved and sinful and is capable of doing terrible things. But we act like it's not. And we look at others who have done terrible things throughout history and we say, how could they do that? Not even realizing that, except not for the grace of God, our hearts are capable of that. And so mercy is is God standing there saying, this is what you deserve, but I'm going to keep that from you. I'm going to make sure you, I'm not going to let you feel that. Grace is when he says, and also I'm going to take off my judge gowns that signify holiness and goodness, and I'm going to put them on you, give you the position of stature that I have, lift you up, and I'm going to take your orange jumpsuit and put it on myself and take your punishment in your place. Mercy precedes grace. And so Peter says, once you were not a people, but now you are. And what was it that did that? Because once you didn't have mercy, but now you have mercy. And mercy changes people. Mercy gives you a people. Mercy builds temples. Mercy brings people together. Mercy is an important thing. Um, In St. Petersburg, if you walk around on the harbor, there's a, it may not be there now, but there there was a rather large boat floating out in the harbor. And it, it, it was big. And fancy and had like spinning stuff on the top. I assumed it cost a couple of bucks. And there was a writing on the back, big cursive writing in quotes. And it was the name of the boat. And boat names are really important. And this one was named Well Deserved. Ah, okay. Um, Now, pride destroys our joy. When you receive something that you think you deserve, especially if it's well deserved, the thing that you deserve, you suddenly, when you receive it, you're not thankful. You're not gracious. You say, it's about time. What took you so long to give it to me? 
pride destroys the, everything in our life that it touches. Mercy, when we realize that we have been shown mercy, there is no place for pride. We cannot have it. Uh, it cannot exist. Pride steals our joy. Mercy, however, you once you weren't a people, now you are. Why? Because you didn't have mercy, now you do. Mercy binds people together. When we all realize how merciful our God has been to us, we are bound together. We are drawn together as we look at each other and say, look at who, who we are and look at what we have received. Look at what God has given us. We have received mercy that we do not deserve. Um, and so mercy... If community is so important, like we talked about last week, community is really important, how is it that we can have community that stays together? Mercy is the glue that binds community together. Mercy builds temples. Mercy is incredibly important in community. We have to exercise mercy. And the best way to do that is by using the word despite. I accept them despite these things. I will show them love acceptance despite these things. We all, if all cards were all out on the table, people would see exactly who we are and we would all have to look at each other and say, you know what? I love you despite that. I love you despite that. I love you despite that. And we would hear people say, I love you despite that. All of us have parts of our life that are buried and that are hidden. And when we exercise mercy, when we confess and we are honest and we realize that we have received mercy despite the things that we have done, it binds us together when we realize we have all been forgiven. We are all broken vessels, and God still chose us, which doesn't make any sense other than through mercy. Oftentimes in the church, um, there's a certain snobbery in the body of Christ that is usually drawn along party lines, conservative, fundamentalist, mainline, liberal, um, and there's some of each of those in this room, by the way. I don't know if you've been able to interact with a lot of people. We have a very wide range of followers of Jesus in this room, and that's what binds us together. We are followers of Jesus. I'm very very happy with that. Um, of course, there is some theological debate. There's arguments. I love it. It's fun. Um, it sharpens us. Um, but our recognition of the grace and the mercy of Jesus is what binds us together. It is all we have. We cannot separate ourselves the way we have. But there is a snobbery um, in the body of Christ that I have grown up seeing. I grew up Southern Baptist. I was pretty much told growing up that Southern Baptists are the only people that are going to heaven. Um, <laughs> And that, that Charismatics and Pentecostals were bizarre and wacko. But then growing up, I met a bunch of them. And I learned about God from them. And, and Presbyterians were wrong. But then I met a bunch of Presbyterians, and I realized, oh, they're less wrong than I thought they were. And then I met a bunch of Methodists, and I'm like, oh, wow, these people have a high respect for Jesus and his teaching. And, and then I met Reformed and Armenian and, and Lutheran and Calvinist and, and and I realized how many perspectives there are to look at Jesus and just how many people I need to be bound together to instead of separated from. There is a snobbery uh, which makes you think that, yes, there are other armed forces, but then there's the CTM, SEAL Team 6, and I am part of the SEAL Team 6 of Christianity, okay? My people, we're, we're an elite group of theologians, and we are intellectual, and we come from the, this, this particular leader, and this is how we think. And our pride divides us, and pretty soon we end up on a boat called Well-Deserved. <sighs> and we like to sort of draw these barriers around us and say, yeah, they're like my, they're like my brothers and sisters. They're, like, they're my family, but, I mean, these guys, they're more like my crazy uncle. 
they're adopted. Um, and, and, this, and this is how we kind of talk about people. We don't like to associate with our brothers and sisters oftentimes, and it's, it's pathetic. And so I'm a big fan of satire. I don't, I don't know if you're a big fan of satire. I think there's probably no better way to make a point than through satire. Um, and so I, I, I brought a piece that I found that I think is incredible, a little website called The Onion. Maybe you've seen it. Um, and I, I don't use a lot of satire because it's unbecoming of a pastor. It tends to upset people and rock the boat. Um, and so I opt out of using it a lot. Um, but there's this piece that they put out in January that was brilliant. It's written from the perspective of someone who hates Christians. And it's written about the incredible things a group of Christians were doing. The loving, gracious, merciful acts that a group of Christians were doing. But how much he hates them. Okay, so if you're easily offended, there's nothing I can do for you here. Um, <laughs> I find this hilarious. Okay, here we go. Um, the article is called, Local Church Full of Brainwashed Idiots Feeds the Town's Poor Every Week. All right, so here we go. Macon, Georgia. Sources confirmed today that the brainwashed morons at First Baptist Assembly of Christ, all of whom blindly accept whatever simplistic fairy tales are fed to them, volunteer each Wednesday night to provide meals for two impoverished members of the community. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people in town who have fallen on hard times and are unable to afford to put food on the table, so we try to help out as best we can said 48-year-old Carrie Bellamy, one of the mindless sheep who adheres to a backwards ideology and is incapable of thinking for herself while spooning out homemade shepherd's pie to a line of poor and homeless individuals. It feels great to share our blessings with the less fortunate. Plus, it's fun to work alongside all the members of our corrupt institution of propaganda and lies who come out each week. As of press time, the brainless, unthinking lemmings had donated winter clothing they no longer wore to several needy families and still hadn't opened their eyes to reality. Now... I find that brilliant because there are so many times when we say things like, oh, yeah, we respect what they're doing, but then in the same breath, we talk about how terrible people are. This is exposing exactly, exactly what people say, what people tend to think about us and the problem they have describing the work that Christians have done throughout history and continue to do. It's very, very difficult to put it all together sometimes when people who you disagree with turn out to be incredibly loving people. And there comes a time in life when you start talking to somebody and you realize they're not who you thought they were and you have been incredibly unmerciful and they are actually your brother or your sister in Christ and you have just been so unmerciful with them. And that is why you have been separate. Your pride has kept you separate. God is calling us to unity. If we are all pieces of the temple, we have to be bound together. We have to exercise mercy. Because until you receive mercy, you are not a people. You will be separate. Once you were not a people, now you are a people. Why? Because once you didn't have mercy, but now you exercise mercy and you receive mercy and you understand it and it has bound you together. Mercy, the things of God bring us together. They don't separate us. They just don't. Um, one of the things about the temple is I think if you were to understand a broader scope of the temple, the evolution of the temple from beginning of Genesis until this point now, um, I think it would open your eyes to exactly um, the kind of mercy we really have received. Not just our salvation, but the very fact that God still even bothers with us. 
Um, in Genesis chapter 1, there is, if you were here during our studies in Genesis, I think this would have been about a year and eight months ago, there was a, a description. I spent a few days talking about um, the, 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 um, the, the description of creation in Genesis um, versus the description of the temple. And, and what theologians tell us is that the description that we have of creation very much matches and parallels the descriptions that we have for the creation of temples, the building of temples, the amount of time, the order in which things are done, the descriptions that are used of them, even um, ancient Near East temples, their descriptions of them, if you compare them to um, the, the creation of the world in Genesis, you see something incredibly beautiful, that you see that the Israelites, the, 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 the people who kept this story for us and told this story, wanted, wanted us to see what they see. And that is that God created this world to be his temple. That he didn't build it to be abandoned. He built it to live in here with us, in community with us. God wanted his work to be here. Um, In Psalm chapter 78, verse 69, it says, He builds his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. If you study the descriptions of the building of the temple in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy versus the descriptions that we have in Genesis, there's so many parallels. And go back and, and listen to our early Genesis podcast if you'd like to see that. Um, but there's something really interesting, really interesting that happens when creation starts. Watch this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, the word that is used there to describe the void and the darkness and the deep is tohu bohu. It's a, it's a word that means chaos. It's a word that means there's just no order, there's no purpose. There's nothing. There's just nothing there of meaning, of value. And the Spirit of God hovers over the face of the chaos as if to survey it like an architect would visit a site and walk around the site and say, here's what we're going to do. And it's as if the Spirit of God is saying, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to carve out a space here in this chaos, and we are going to do something important and beautiful and purposeful. It's going to be my temple, a home. I will dwell here. I will create people to tabernacle with, and it's going to be amazing. So God in seven days builds his temple. Now, uh, fast forward, the Sinai Desert. The world is a different place from the time of the first people, Adam and Eve, up until the point where the Israelites are in the Sinai Desert. Um, the human spirit, the, the, the human flesh has utterly destroyed the temple of God. We, we, there, there is, uh, there's people enslaved in bondage. There is immorality just covering the earth. It is a terrible, terrible place. And so God takes a people and he chooses them. He leads them out. He makes them a holy nation. He gives them a royal priesthood. He makes them his possession. Does this sound familiar? It's very much exactly what Peter has been describing. And he takes them to Sinai, gives them a covenant, makes a pact with them and says, now we are going to build another temple. I built one before. You kind of ruined it. We're going to do this again. We're going to do this right. And so he says, it says in Exodus 31, we had the description of them getting ready to build the temple. And there's a man named Bezalel. And it says, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the spirit of God, with the ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting and in carving wood uh, to work in every craft. Now, this is the very first time in all of scriptures in human history that the Spirit of God has come upon a person. Notice it's not a prophet. It's not a theologian. It's not a preacher. It's an artist. 
So that's for you, artists out there. Now, who is this guy? He's, he's going to be the architect. He's going he's to design the whole thing. He's, gonna, he's got apparently now all these skills that he's going to put together to build the temple. So in Genesis, you have the Spirit of God hovering over what he's about to make sense of. He's going to build a temple that gets destroyed by us. And then in, 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 in the book of Exodus, you have the Spirit of God takes over Bezalel, and, and, he's, and he's surveying everything, getting ready to work. He's going to build another temple. Now, let's fast forward one more time. The book of Acts, the day of Pentecost. Once again, mankind with our flesh has destroyed the temple of God. God sends prophet after prophet to tell us to get back on track. We kill them all. God sends his son. We kill him. Dead for three days. Resurrects, meets with his people, and says, hey, I'm going to do something different. And he ascends. A little while later, the disciples are in the upper room. Something interesting happens. Oopsie, did it twice. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the, Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So again, Genesis, the Spirit of God hovering over what he's going to do. He's going to build a temple. We destroy it. Exodus, the Spirit of God hovers over. Okay, he's going to do this again. We destroy it. And he says, you know what? I'm going to bypass human flesh altogether. I'm going to go right into man's soul, right into his spirit. I'm going to connect with that, and I'm going to make a temple out of them. And so notice, every time God does something, we destroy it. What does he do? Does he say, well, I'm better than you, and I'm going to have nothing to do with you the way we do? No, he is merciful, and he draws closer. And we do it again, and he draws closer. We do it again, he draws closer. I mean, the descriptions of God that we have in the scriptures, first God is really far away, and then he tabernacles with them, and then he comes in human flesh, and the whole time he's walking around among people, he can't get close enough to them. He's hugging them, he's kissing them, he's, he's touching them, he's embracing them, he's healing them. God can't get close enough to you despite everything that you do to him. Despite it all, mercy draws closer. Some of us are incredibly unmerciful to each other. It is not a representation of God at all in our life. Some of us don't understand the gospel as it applies to our relationships. So many of us have been burned by somebody even one time and refused to show mercy. And we wish daily for their destruction. That is your pride. That pride will take you by yourself into life. Into a future that you do not want. Mercy is what binds us together. Mercy. If you want to be a people, if you want to belong to people, to a group of people, if there's a group of people that you are just jealous, raging jealous of, you know deep down in your heart that all you wanted was to belong to them. You all need to exercise mercy together. Mercy binds us together. Pride sends us out into the field to be a stumbling block to everyone around us. When we focus on ourselves, we splinter off. When we focus on others and we offer this mercy to them, it binds us together. This is what holds the community together. If you want to know yourself, you have to be in community. But if you want to be in community, you have to exercise the gospel. And it starts with mercy, followed by grace. 
And so I don't know what this means for any of you. I imagine some of you, we all probably have a face in our minds right now of somebody that we have been completely unmerciful with. I don't see why we don't just remedy that. Why we don't just take some time in communion. We confess that to God, confess that to someone. Maybe go make something right with somebody. Maybe you need to make a phone call. Maybe you need to send a text. Maybe you need to be merciful, far more merciful than you have ever been. And so our communion servers, why don't you guys go ahead and and prepare? We're going to take communion this morning. Communion is a very important thing to us. We do it every single time we get together. Um, The bread is the body of Christ broken for us. The wine is the body of Christ spilled for us. We take it, we dip it in the wine, and we eat it. We take it down inside of us. There's nothing mystical or weird that happens. It doesn't turn into anything. All it is is symbolic of us saying, God, thank you for what you did. I remember what you did when you showed mercy upon me. And we take the body of Christ, the gospel down inside of us. And we say, Lord, please take this down. Touch the parts of my life that have not been touched yet by the gospel. There are so many of them. And we ask that the gospel would touch them. Can we do that? So let's take some time and let's pray. Father, we love you. Be with us now. Help us to fully repent, fully understand who you are and what you want for us. You are a holy God. We are broken vessels. You have been so merciful to us, and we are still so unmerciful to those around us. Change that. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen. Take some time and talk to Jesus this morning.